pretty momentous times that we uh, get to witness, that we get to be a part of. And uh, as Todd talked about, how we interpret the, the documents that, uh, that kind of frame our lives is really important. And we're going to deal with a passage today uh, at the end of Mark 7 and the very beginning, the first 11 verses of, uh, sorry, did I say Mark? John. We're in the book of John. Hi, welcome to Ridgefield Community Church. <laughs> My name's Keith Gove, and uh, they pay me to work here. Um, at least until this week they did. Um, we're in the book of John, and uh, we're at the end of chapter 7. And we have two stories that we are going to smush together this morning. So um, because Todd's back, I, I came up with this illustration to, to uh, describe what we're going to be doing today. So uh, you guys familiar with Portillo's? You ever been there? Chicago, there you go, Chicago restaurant. Uh, they do hot dogs, sausage, uh, steak, Italian beef sandwiches, right? So the mad food scientists at Portillo have come up with a dessert, Okay, they took two entire desserts, right, a vanilla shake and a decadent chocolate cake. And they decided, why not throw the cake into the shake? So now you have the cake in the shake. They blend it up, and voila, you have the Portillo's chocolate cake shake. That's what we're doing this morning. We've got two different stories, whole entire stories. We're just going to dump them together, blend them together, and uh, we get the best of, uh, of both of them today. So here's the sermon that we've got uh, today. We've got this story from John 8, the woman caught in adultery, but then we also have the story of the story, how we got this story, behind the story, how, why is it in brackets, why are we treating it the way we're treating it. So we've got two different stories we're going to tell. So we've got, in the immortal words of Jerry Reed, we have a long way to go and a short time to get there. So here we go, the story. Let's read it. Remember from last week in Brian's sermon, Jesus is in the temple. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. They get to the part where they're talking, they're celebrating water coming from the rock when they were out in the desert wandering, living in tents. And Jesus stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. John goes immediately into this context. They went each to their own house at the end of the day, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, Moses in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us interpret this document? Would you help us to, uh, to understand, to apply your word 
Um, Lord, would you teach us by your Holy Spirit that we would see you in this text, that we would learn from you, and that we would trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think it's a familiar story, right? It's a story that we've heard before. We're going to walk through the details of it, and then we'll walk through some of the background of it. So we've got our cast of characters. We've got Jesus, we've got the scribes and Pharisees, we've got the woman, and we've got the crowd. And in this way, in this uh, this case, I'll call them the mob, right? Not like Chicago, Portillo, not that mob, not three fingers, fratelli, you know, but the mob, like, they're, they're whipped up in a, in a frenzy, right? They are, this is a lynch mob. They are ready to kill this poor woman that they have just dragged through the city to, to try and trap Jesus. So the trap is, the, the scribes and the Pharisees say, hey, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, adultery is not a, a, a public sin. This is not something that, you know, at least in their day, maybe in our day, you know, it's, it's a little different. But in their day, this was not something that you, you find people doing. So this is an, another clue for us that this is a trap. This is something they have orchestrated. They are looking for ways to trap Jesus. And so they come up with this scheme. They say, okay, we've got him. We've got Jesus cornered. If he says, yes, let's stone her, That has the appearance of holiness, right? But we know he's going to lose credibility with the crowd, right? Because that's going to just look, that's going to be bad PR for Jesus, right? And he's going to get in big trouble with the Romans because they don't allow us to kill people for religious reasons or any other reasons, right? We're living under the rule of the Romans. The Romans have said, hey, you guys do your own religious thing, but you're not allowed to kill anybody. That's up to us who dies and who doesn't. So if Jesus says, yes, let's stone her, it looks like he's doing right in the Jewish system, but they're going to get him in trouble with the Romans. If he says, no, don't stone her, then they've got him for contradicting the law. Moses said that we should stone her. Jesus says no, so he's breaking the law and he's teaching other people to break the law. Now we've got Jesus in trouble with all the Jewish religious and political establishment. We have got him cornered. There's no way out for Jesus. Of course, there is. But Jesus' response is so weird. It's so just not what we expect. He, he starts drawing on the ground. So what do you say? They say, what, what, should we stone her? Should we not stone her? Moses said we should stone her. What do we do? And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, We're going to get to this, but we don't know what he's writing on the ground. We don't know what's happening on the ground. But we know it doesn't satisfy the crowd. Whatever he's writing does not satisfy them, and they continue to press him. What should we do? What should we do? What should we do? What do you say? So he stands up, and he says to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then once more, he begins, he bends down, and he writes on the ground. Now, I'm sure you've heard this preached, and I'm sure you have heard all kinds of things about what Jesus wrote on the ground. Some people say, oh, he wrote the Ten Commandments on the ground. Some people say, oh, he wrote, you know, their specific personal sins on the ground. Other people say he wrote the names of their adulterous mistresses on the ground. All kinds of theories about what Jesus was writing. We don't know. John doesn't tell us. 
what he was writing. All we know is that's not the thing that made them disperse. That's not what got their attention. What got their attention is Jesus saying, do you really want justice? He reorients the crowd. He says, okay, let's just assume for a minute that we're going to stone her. Whoever throws that first rock, are you ready for the same scrutiny in your life? Whoever among you is ready for that kind of scrutiny, go ahead. Here's, here's the rock. Start throwing. Jesus has other places said, here's the summary of the law. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor. Even just by that standard, they have failed of loving this woman and caring for this woman and caring about her. They've already failed. They're already guilty. Not one of them is sinless in this mob. So Jesus disarms their plot, disarms their trap. And I love, he had no for, uh, he had no warning for this. Obviously, he's God, right? So he knows everything, and yet he's human, and so this is all happening. So I don't know exactly what all is happening in the mind of Jesus, but I know there was no warning for this. He's teaching the crowd in the temple, and then all of a sudden, this crowd comes with the religious leaders, and they take over the discussion. Hey, we want to be heard, and they come in, and they bring this woman in front of Jesus. So He's got exactly that long to decide how he's going to respond, and he completely disarms them and destroys them. And he saves the woman. So when they hear this, when they hear, okay, whoever among you is ready for this kind of scrutiny, whoever among you has not broken the law, you go ahead and throw the first stone. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus is left alone with the woman standing before him. And he asks, has no one condemned you? No one, Lord. He says, neither do I. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So not only does he disarm this trap of the religious leaders, but he boldly declares, Moses said we should stone these women, but I'm not going to. He boldly declares his ability to rightly interpret the law. He's the only one in that group who had the right to throw the first stone. He wasn't being stopped by shame. He wasn't being stopped by some hidden sin that he didn't want found out. He could have thrown that first stone but chose to show mercy. Back to what we heard him say, read from John in chapter 3. He didn't come to condemn the world. The world already stood condemned. If Jesus starts throwing rocks, there's not going to be an end to him throwing rocks. He came to save and to establish this foundation that there could be a righteousness that comes from a personal experience of God's grace and his mercy. That's what he's beginning. So that's our story. But then we've got the story behind the story, right? So in your text, there's these little brackets or there's an asterisk or there's little, little dagger-looking things or things that say, you know, this is uh, from 753 to 811 is not in the earliest manuscripts. Well, what is, for some of you, you're like, oh, interesting, all right, and you move on. Like, that makes total sense. I don't need any more information. But for the rest of us, we're like, well, what do you mean? 
In what manuscripts? It's in this manuscript. Which manuscripts is it not in? What does it mean that it's not in the earliest manuscripts? And why does that matter to me? So that's the part we're going to talk about next. This is the story behind the story. So this story starts with the book of Acts. The disciples are, are taking the stories of Jesus, not just from Jerusalem and uh, Judea to Galilee, back and forth anymore. Now the church is expanding. The church is growing. These stories of Jesus are going everywhere. Remember at Pentecost, people from all over the Roman Empire come to Christ. They hear the gospel spoken in their own language, and then they go. And they're telling these stories of Jesus back in their hometown, wherever that is, throughout the known world. And so these stories are going everywhere, everywhere, way beyond the boundaries where Jesus had taught. And these stories are being written down. We know Mark is, is writing down Peter's account. And we know that Luke is interviewing eyewitnesses. And he's writing down his account of what's happening. And we've got Matthew writing his account of Jesus. And John writing his. All these are getting written down and they're getting passed around. Um, Paul's letters are being sent not only to the church in Philippi, not only to the church in Colossae, but then they're being copied and they're being given out and sent to other churches. His letters are going throughout the Roman world. And these churches, these communities of believers, communities of faith are growing and they're expanding and they are flourishing. And this does not make the Roman emperors happy. Because the Roman emperors, they actually believe in the Roman gods, right? So I think sometimes we just imagine it's kind of like a formality for them or like a, you know, just a, this is what we do. We're Romans. We, you know, we talk about Jupiter and Saturn and Mars and Hermes and all these other people, right? But these are actual gods to them. And the Christians are disrespecting them. They're dishonoring them. They're not offering sacrifices to who the emperor thinks are the real gods, and so they're thinking in a very real way, these Christians are bringing about catastrophe for the empire of Rome. We cannot let this happen. So they start persecuting, killing, stopping as best they can the Christians. So the first and most notable of those is Paul uh, in 67, killed by the emperor Nero. Um, and it goes from there over the next 250 years until 313. There are like 10 different waves of widespread persecution of Christians to stop this growing and spreading of Christianity. So here's a little timeline. By 100 AD, all the original 11, remember Judas Iscariot killed himself right around the time Jesus died. The other 11 die and are killed over the next uh, 60, 70 years so that by 100 AD, all of them, including Paul, all of those original apostles are dead. And now it's up to their disciples, the people who came to faith through Paul, through John, through Matthew, through all these guys. They're the ones who are preserving and protecting the true, the real stories of what Jesus said, of what Jesus taught. They're the ones who have to go and say, hey, no, Jesus was not 11 feet tall. No, Jesus did not, you know, shoot lightning bolts into the sheep to make their wool staticky. No, that's not a true story. He didn't do that. Um, they're the ones who have to protect and preserve the real stories. And they feel it. So they're writing it down and they're like, we got to protect these. So by 200, there's a, 
there's a rule, a canon, a standard, not a canon like, you know, you shoot, you know, Super Dave Osborne or Steve-O out of, but a, a canon which just means a, a rule, a guideline for what's real. What were the true, real stories of Jesus? So by 200, they've got these pretty much set. It's not official for about another 150 years, but they've got this Muratorian canon that is, these are the, the stories that are the real, true stuff. But then about 300, Diocletian says, no more. These Christians, we are not going to allow it anymore. I'm going to be the Roman emperor who restores true worship to the Roman Empire. So he sets about with a, a systematic uh, persecution of the Christians, ordering his governors and his prefects in all the provinces uh, throughout the Roman Empire to burn churches, burn holy books, burn the writings, and burn any Christians who won't recant. So what this does is all of a sudden they're losing their leaders, they're losing their elders, they're losing the people who are in charge of these Christian faith communities, and they're losing their writings. So these writings are becoming all the more precious because they don't have the apostles to go back to. And now they don't even have their leaders to go back to. These writings are precious. And when Emperor Constantine uh, comes to faith in 1312 and then declares Christianity is okay in the Roman Empire in 1313, the demand for writing just skyrockets for these true, real stories of what did John say about Jesus? What did he tell us? What are the real stories? What did Paul say to the church in Colossae about how to live out this faith? What did he say to Philippi? What did he say? All these letters. We want the real and the true stories so that we can continue to disciple and to teach people. So the biggest centers for these Christians are spread out through the Mediterranean, throughout the Roman world, in Rome, in Ephesus, in Antioch, and in Alexandria. These are the biggest communities of Christians, and they become kind of copy centers around 300, the mid-300s. They're, they're putting out as many copies of these letters and gospels as they can. And what they do is they say, okay, what's our best copy of the gospel of John? What's our best copy of the gospel of Matthew? What's our best copy of Philippians? Our best copy of Colossians? Whatever. And they're making copies of those best copies. And they're not, there's no internet, just so you know, in these days. No internet, no telephones. So what Ephesus is doing, they're not telling Rome. And what Rome is doing, they're not telling Antioch or Alexandria. They're just taking their best copies because they got people who, who want to know. They want to know about this Jesus. They want to know these stories. So they're making the copies and they're sending them out. Now, from modern-day Turkey, modern-day Syria, modern-day Egypt, these become what, uh, what Bible scholars call text families. So they're, they're all building off of their best copy, right, of each of these books. So the best copy in Rome is different than the best copy in uh, Ephesus. And so all the copies that are built around those start to kind of look very similar. They have a lot of the same features. And so there now becomes a Roman or a Latin text family. All the manuscripts that were built off of that one original, they all kind of look the same. And in Ephesus, they call the Byzantine text family because they all kind of look the same. They all kind of are built off of a very similar, uh, off of one uh, original. 
So same in Syria, same in Alexandria. As the church is growing, they're doing their best to supply them with the true, real stories of Jesus. And for whatever reason, that church in Ephesus and around Ephesus and around Constantinople, all in that area, they were either the most passionate or just the most prolific or maybe the most missionary-minded because that Byzantine family of texts, they went everywhere, everywhere in the world. So much so that those texts are called the majority texts because everywhere in the world they're finding these copies of copies from Ephesus called the Byzantine family. So then fast forward 1,200 years. Erasmus, this guy named Desiderius Erasmus says, I'm going to put together a scholarly copy of the New Testament. I'm going to gather as many of the best manuscripts as I can find, and I'm going to put together the best Greek New Testament that I can. And then 100 years after that, King James of England and Scotland says, I'm going to make an authorized version of the Bible in English for my people. And they're all using the same documents, their best manuscripts at that time, and they're all from the Byzantine family of texts. They don't know this. We don't figure this out until about 100 or 200 years ago, till the 18 and 1900s. The British Empire is spreading around the world, right? And they're going into every crypt and every mausoleum and every library and every church, and they are, uh, depending on the word choice you want to use, liberating historical artifacts, um, stealing historical artifacts, uh, preserving, if we want to put a nice spin on it. They are taking these from the entire world, everywhere, that the, Roman, or that the uh, British Empire has people. They're bringing all this stuff back to the British Museum. And all of a sudden, only like 150 years ago, we're finding out, hey, there's a whole family of texts from Alexandria. There's a whole family of texts from Syria. We're finding all these different texts and we're finding older and older and older versions of these copies back into the 100s and 200s AD. Suddenly, we learn that the Byzantine text family had some unique stuff that we didn't know was unique to the Byzantine family, like uh, the Lord's Prayer. You ever wonder why the King James has the, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, and the other, uh, the other versions don't have it? It was in the Byzantine text, it was in the text they used, that Erasmus used, that they used for the King James, but it wasn't in the other three text families, but we didn't know that until the last couple hundred years. Uh, also, the longer version of Mark, we didn't know was only in the Byzantine family, and this passage. So now, again, we care about these documents and we care about interpreting rightly, so what I want to know is, did it really happen? Like, okay, I get it. Like, it was, it was in Ephesus around 300. It was a part of what the church was using and teaching and part of the, the gospel that they had their best copy. But what I want to know is, did Jesus do these things? Did Jesus say these things? That is what I want to know. So I believe he did do these things and say these things in this, in this text. Uh, and here's the, here's the evidence or here's, the, here's my case for it. So there's evidence in the text itself. So in Luke, we have a description of what Jesus did when he was in the temple. He says, uh, every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the Mount 
called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Well, that sounds just like what Mark, uh, what John, I don't know why John is Mark all the time. That sounds just like the, the setting that John gave us in our text. Earlier in Luke, he tells us the scribes and Pharisees began to press Jesus hard and provoke him to speak about many things lying in wait for him. Well, that sounds like the trap that they set for him in our story. Um, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. And then in Matthew, even more specific, Matthew says the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. So they say, tell us what, uh, what you think about uh, whether it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. So the very same kind of trap. If you say no, no taxes, the people are going to love you, but we're going to get you in trouble with Rome. If you say yes, pay your taxes, the people are going to be mad at you, and we're going to gain more power because you're going to lose power. So we see the pattern of the Pharisees displayed throughout the other Gospels, just like we see it in our story today. Um, the Sadducees, another group of religious leaders, came with this crazy hypothetical question that I'm not going to take the time to tell the whole thing. But basically, Moses wrote for us that if a brother, wa a, a brother dies and leaves his wife, it's the other brother's uh, obligation to marry that woman and raise up a family for their brother um, and so they say, now, what if that happened, but he has seven brothers, and all the seven brothers marry the widow, but none of them have kids. Whose wife is she going to be in heaven? So they come up with this craziness to try and trap Jesus, to try and get him to stumble, to say something that they can accuse him and get him in trouble for. This sounds like our text. And earlier in John, when, when uh, Jesus says, go and sin no more to the woman, it sounds very much like what he said to the man that he healed in the pools at Bethesda. And remember, those are the Bethesda pools, not the Bethsaida pools. House of mercy, not house of fish. So, see that you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So, we have the, the setting that's very similar to other passages that we know of in Jesus. The, the practice of Jesus is very similar. And the... the the end result, the teaching from Jesus, also very similar. So we have the evidence from the text. We also have the evidence from John who said at the end of the gospel in chapter 20, there's so much more that Jesus said and did. If I tried to include it all, all the books in all the world could not contain it. So he tells us he is taking all the things that Jesus did and he's only including certain things because he just can't include everything. So... It's quite possible this story is one of the real things that Jesus said and did, but John, for whatever reason, did not include it in the earliest versions. Um, the evidence from history. The church has used this story uh, and known this story and loved this story, and it rings true for the church over a thousand plus years, which gives, as we are led by the Spirit, gives some credibility that, you know what, if this were teaching something other than the truth about Jesus, we would hopefully be directed by God that this is, this is not actual gospel truth. The evidence from the church that this was existing in Ephesus, this was part of the teaching as early as 300. Um, Augustine references this story in 400, and he says, men of weak faith are taking it out 
of their New Testament because they're afraid that it's giving their wives license to commit adultery because Jesus is merciful to this woman. And, and Augustine is scolding them for that. Like, don't do that. It's not what he's saying. So a long history of use in the church and the evidence just from the big idea of the teaching. Jesus opposing the religious leaders for their self-righteousness and having mercy on this desperate and humiliated woman um, and reorienting people to the heart of the law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and, and never think that we could fulfill it on our own, but looking for that righteousness that comes from an experience of God's mercy. All of these things are consistent uh, with Jesus' teaching. So what do we do with these stories? What, what difference does it make? What's the big deal? First, I think the big deal is Jesus is opposed on every side. The religious leaders are opposed to him. Uh, the most powerful, influential religious leaders couldn't trap him. The most powerful political leaders, Pontius Pilate included, could not stop him, could not stop this movement. Though they kill him, it doesn't end, it just grows. Um, and the crowds couldn't dissuade him or deter him to their side or to their agenda. Jesus could not be stopped. And so I think the big idea that I walk away with is thankfulness, gratefulness, that what God intends to do, no one and nobody is going to stop him. No one and nobody is going to derail him, is going to make him do something other than what he has committed himself to do. So his promises, we can stand on and we can say, this is going to happen. If he says he's coming back, he's coming back. If he says he's going to prepare a place for me, he's preparing a place for me. If he says he will make all things new and he will wipe away every tear, he will make all things new. And so we can be thankful this week that God always does what he intends he did it here in this story, and he will always. Second thing, so he is merciful to this woman. He's kind to this woman who is caught in adultery, who is dragged through the city. It would be, I think, a shame for us to leave it just with the woman. Yes, he was kind to her, and yes, that is fantastic. But for us, I feel like we need to place ourselves in her shoes. Because on this journey of faith, at some point, if we are going to trust Jesus, we are going to have to be in her shoes and stand before God and say, God, I am ashamed of what I've done. You know it perfectly you see it all perfectly and you would be right and just and fair and holy to remove me from your presence forever i don't deserve your mercy like that woman they had a case to pursue her to death Every one of us could have been in that spot. Maybe not 
the same crime, maybe not the, the same infraction of the law, but every one of us. needed Jesus to have mercy on us. And we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. And he would have been right and good and fair to not give it to us. So we can be thankful this week that he's been merciful to us. Not just to this woman. We can be thankful to that too, but thankful that for us, he gives us an opportunity for a righteousness that begins with an experience of his mercy. And lastly, we can thank God for the mercy that he has extended. Oops, sorry. All right. We have Bibles all around us, right? So what's the big deal? Why is this so important, this idea that this text is, is kind of bracketed off, right? Two real quick examples of old, old antiquity literature, one from uh, Julius Caesar and the other from a, a historian called Tacitus. I want us to have confidence in these documents so both these documents were written around the time of Jesus. Um, the Gallic Wars was written 50 years before Jesus and Tacitus about 100 years after Jesus' birth. And uh, our earliest manuscripts of these don't come until about seven to 900 years later after the original writing. But nobody doubts that Julius Caesar wrote Gallic Wars. Nobody doubts that Tacitus wrote his histories. No one doubts it, even though there's a gap of 900 years. Here's the big deal for the New Testament. They had 10 copies. They had two copies. We have 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. We have 10,000 Latin manuscripts of the New Testament. We have 9,000 other manuscripts in Coptic, in Syrian, in uh, Armenian. Um, we have almost 25,000 copies or partial copies dating as early as 125 AD. That's a gap of 60 years. We can be thankful this week that for God's word. We have a bazillion, you know, versions on our phone. We can just see it as like, oh yeah, I got... I got one there, and I got like seven in my office, and there's like five in the lobby, and yeah, they're everywhere. We have something amazing in our possession, and not a thing in itself, not something we worship, but something that is reliable, that points us to God. So we can thank God this week for his word, for the amount of evidence that this is happening all over the world um, as it's being uh, developed, it's not just, you know, if you read the Da Vinci Code or saw the movie, you know, not just old guys in a, in a back room somewhere, you know, deciding this is in, this is out, this is in. Like, this is the whole church worldwide deciding the true, the real stories of Jesus. The timing of the evidence that we have it available, the distribution that it is everywhere, not in one little place, but throughout the world, the preservation of this evidence that we have today reliable, trustworthy manuscripts that can correct each other, that can say this is what we had at the very beginning, 60 years after its original writing. These are reliable resources, and they're reliable for the purpose of showing us what faith looks like, 
what genuine faith looks like and what it can look like in our lives. We never want to be, I think the reason maybe God didn't give us the original manuscripts written by John is we would put it in a museum somewhere and everybody would come and touch it, you know, for healing or whatever. Like, oh, if I can just be in the same room as that original, I'll be made better. But we have the, the truth of the scripture that we would see who God is and what it looks like to trust him and the change that that makes in our lives. And that's my hope for us that we would see who God is through these texts and trust him more because he has done so much to preserve his word that we might know him. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed we have so much to be thankful for. Lord, we're thankful for your mercy. We're thankful for your sovereignty that you always do what you intend, that no one can stop your plan, no one can sidetrack your plan. Thank you for a righteousness that begins with you just being merciful to us when we don't deserve it. And Lord, thank you for your word that points us to who you are, that shows us, that reveals who you are, that we could know you, that we could trust you, and that we could follow you. Lord, help us to do that with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength. In Jesus' name, amen.